Touching up but not quite Touching a promised land I hear pleas and prayers And a desperate whisper saying Oh Lord, please give us a helping hand We are joined by Frank Viola. He's the author of the book, Jesus Now, Unveiling the Present-Day Ministry of Christ. Frank, welcome back to the program. Oh, it's great to be on, always. And uh, now, last time we had you on, you were talking about your book on uh, Bethany, about Jesus' favorite place. And uh, this new one, uh, really an interesting book, because I don't think we... We think about this, I think, in the context that you've kind of put it. We think about Jesus' ministry when he was on earth and, you know, uh, the 33 years he was here among us. I don't know that we always think about Jesus as an ongoing ministry in the world today. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things that provoked me to write this is we know an awful lot about what Jesus did in the days of his flesh when he was here, and most preaching and teaching is based on that. You know, it's either what Jesus did or what he taught. And then, of course, there's a lot of teaching and speculation on his second coming. Mm -hmm. You know, when will he return? What will he do? Etc. But there's that parenthesis in the middle, you know, (laughs) (laughs) between his ascension and his second coming. Well, Well, what is he doing now? Is he just sitting at the right hand of the Father, you know, kind of dozing off, waiting for, <laughs> for a trumpet to blast? Well, the answer is no. He is very active, and he has a ministry. It has seven aspects to it, and it all benefits us, and it benefits the world. And you talk about those. Each part is, uh, chapter is kind of dedicated to one of those aspects. Um, and walk through this real quick here. Um, we'll start with the great high priest, because I think this is the one, you know, you read Hebrews, and it goes into great length about his work as the great high priest. And I think there's kind of a th- idea you tell people they're like, oh yeah, he's our great high priest. What does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's the that's the opening chapter. Boy, there's a lot that's packed in there, but I'll just mention a few highlights, you know. One thing he does as a great high priest is he removes guilt. Mm. You know, guilt is the greatest motivator in the world. And the only people on earth who should not be plagued with guilt is Christians. Mm. Because Jesus Christ has, has done his amazing work at the cross, but now he perpetually intercedes for us. He is at the right hand of the Father, making persistent intercession by virtue of the wounds in his side, in his feet, in his hands. Through that blood, he does something that no mortal can do, and that is remove guilt. Remove the consciousness of sin. And this is something that even though it's available, Tommy, many Christians don't know anything about it. You know, they wake up with a Christian hangover. They think about the stuff they've done. They they question God's love for them. And as great high priest, he solves that problem. And I talk about in the book how. The other thing he does, um, you, you heard the passage in Hebrews 4.12, you know, that the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit even to the joints and the marrow. And in verse 13 it says, and all things are laid bare before him. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a reference to what he does as high priest. You see, the high priest in the Old Testament would take the sacrifice, tie it to the altar, get out a two-edged sword, which was a knife, a big knife, would cut the sacrifice in half, even dividing the joints and the marrow. Mm. 
And what was once hidden in that sacrifice was now laid bare before all. And so Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 is a reference to what Jesus, our high priest, does. When we allow ourselves to sit on the altar, he takes the knife of his word and he divides spirit from soul, which means basically he separates what comes from us, our own natural life, from what comes from him. Hmm. And it gives us the ability to discern the two and also to penetrate and expose our inward motives and intentions. And it's a powerful thing, and I talk about it in the book, how it works. But, you know, those are just two examples of what he does in his ministry of great high priest, boy. And it's it's incredible. It really is incredible for every Christian. And you talk about the, that great message of grace that we have. And in that chapter, though, you warn that there are kind of two, for lack of a better word, two errors that we can fall into with grace. Uh, what, what are those two errors, and how can we avoid falling into them? We got on the one side... We've got people who are teaching, if you want to make God happy, you've got to obey you know, his laws. Mm-hmm. And the implication there is, man, if I, if I miss it, if I mess up, if I violate one of his laws, boy, he's going to come down on me like, like white on rice. You know, he, <laughs> he's going to be very angry, and um, I'm going to lose his love. Even though, even though Christians say, yeah, yeah, I know God loves me, come on, deep down mm-hmm. inside, many Christians doubt that, especially if they're being disobedient or they screw up. That's the one side. It's legalism. It's the gospel that says, you know, you've got to do good in order to earn God's favor. You know, even though you're forgiven, if you want to please him, make him happy, have him not angry with you, you have to obey every jot and tittle. It's still very performance-based. Yeah, it's performance-based, exactly. And um, it puts Christians on a treadmill, you know, and if they're doing well, they feel great and God loves them. If they don't, they feel God doesn't love. Well, then the other side of it is this idea that, well, because Jesus has forgiven all my sins already, then that means... I can do whatever I want. It's not a big deal. And there's no need to repent because I've already repented. And, you know, sin is not an issue. So grace becomes a license to sin. You know, that's the other side of the coin. And I take dead aim at both of these in the book, Tommy, as you know. And I talk about the Christian conscience. And on the one hand, the blood does cleanse from our conscience if we really grab hold of that one ministry of high priest. You know, Jesus is our high priest, which is one of seven ministries. But on the other hand, he also through the Spirit, convicts our conscience or enlightens our conscience and points out when we have missed it. But there's always provision there. So what I do in the book is try to bring that total balance Mm. and transcend both of those extremes and talk about how to walk with Jesus Christ in the here and now, free of guilt, but also very sensitive to our conscience and allowing him to do his work as high priest to separate soul and spirit. So I I think readers will really get the whole picture here and not fall off one side of the horse or the other. (laughs) (laughs) Which is easy to do, yeah. You also talk, I'm going to kind of skip around here, um, because I don't know if I have time to hit all seven, but I want to hit some of Mm -hmm. them that I think people might have the most misconceptions about. Uh, Let's talk about, you you have a chapter on he's our heavenly bridegroom, and we know that that illustration is used a lot in talking about his relationship to the church and and the the bride and the picture of marriage, the picture of God's relationship to the church. Um, What do you think people most misunderstand about this idea of Jesus being the heavenly bridegroom, and, and what does that mean for us? You know, what are we missing out with that? I think for many Christians, it's an abstract concept. Yeah. The reality, though, is Jesus Christ is the greatest lover in the universe. 
I mean, he invented the idea of romance. And the Bible opens up with a boy and a girl uh, being two separate entities and then becoming one. And there's love there. There's a love that's a reflection of the love that's in the Godhead. And then the Bible ends with a boy and a girl (laughs) consummating a marriage. And in between, Jesus, the very first utterance of his ministry when he was introduced to Israel, John the Baptist, at his baptism, introduced him as the bridegroom. Mm. And all throughout the epistles, you see it over and over again that he is the bridegroom. So here's what he's doing. Beyond wanting to be served, which is the big emphasis today in evangelical Christianity, you got to serve, serve, serve. you got to do, do, do. you got to make Jesus happy. You know, he's called you to do this. Get off your butt and get out there. Make disciples, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Beyond all that, he wants lovers. Mm. He wants people who will return the overwhelming passion that he has for them to return it back to him. You know, I mean, look, a man can can get a maid to serve him, but a man wants a wife. He, you know, and that, a wife is not a maid. She's a lover, you know. Yeah. And that's how Jesus Christ sees us, you know, beyond service, beyond slavery. He wants love. He wants to be loved. If our eyes are open to see this and to see how wonderful and majestic and beautiful and attractive he is spiritually, we will love him, you know. John said, we love him because he first loved us, and that's the issue. You know, many Christians do not see him as uh, a lover and someone who wishes to be loved. They equate all that to obedience, you know. Mm -hmm. While that's an aspect of it, boy, it's so much more than that. You know, there are many people serving the Lord today, but there's no love for him, really, in their heart, you know. And that's because they don't see how much he loves it. So as as the bridegroom, he is wooing us. He is seeking to cherish us, and he is wanting to unleash the passion of his being onto us and have it returned to him. So yeah, heavenly bridegroom, I trace that all throughout the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and it's an aspect of Jesus. Beyond the title, oh yeah, he's my bridegroom, or some some Christians, particularly, usually it's some females, uh, some, I say some, not many, but then it's all this mushy sentimentality, you know, that men can't even connect with. Yeah, It's not that at all. He's the lover of our souls, and men and women can love him. We were, in fact, it's funny, because we were talking, I was teaching yesterday on uh, the Great Command you know, the greatest commandment, love the Lord God with our heart, mind, soul. And, and we had that very same point, made that very same point, that if we really saw God for who he was, we would love him. Yeah. If we yeah. really clearly saw him. And then that transforms what you were talking about, that service. I mean, there's a difference between how a wife serves her husband and a maid serves, you know, the exactly. head of the household. You know, it's a total different thing. Or it should be a difference. Yeah, it should be a difference. See, that's Jesus is the perfect husband. Yeah. And you're right. And what I try to do in this book is pull back the curtain and to show how glorious Jesus Christ really is. And out of that, you know, pull the heart toward him of the reader. But yeah, I think it's awesome what he's doing now. You know, he is not passive, folks. Right. He is very active and he wants to be active in your life beyond just answering your prayers, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. What is Jesus doing now? Well, he answered my prayer yesterday. No, his ministry is way bigger than that. Well, today. as you say in your next chapter, he is the author and finisher of our faith. Oh, yeah. And that's that's a biggie, you know, but it's so encouraging. Yeah. Because as, as Paul says in Philippians, he who has begun a good work in you will, not, not might, <laughs> not we <laughs> hope, but he will finish it. 
And Hebrews, of course, calls him the author and finisher of our faith. And in that chapter, I talk about the process of spiritual growth, I think in some fresh ways, you know, because yeah. typical Christian, you say, well, talk about spiritual growth. Okay, well, I got to I gotta pray and read my Bible, go to church, tithe, and speak in tongues, maybe if they belong to a Pentecostal church, and that's how I grow. Well, <laughs> boy, it's, it's way, way beyond that, and it's much more of an intimate thing, and it's much, much more of a practical thing. The beginning of the Christian life, I say this in the book, is, yeah. is fairly easy, yep. and according to elderly people, People at the end, it's fairly easy, but it's the middle that's difficult. Just knowing that whatever he started in you, he is going to finish. Even though it doesn't look like it, even though you may have taken you know five steps backwards, he's committed to completing it. Mm. That is a, a great encouragement. You know, and the fact that it's he he is the one who completes it. You know, yeah. not us. And, uh, you know, we yeah. put ourselves at his disposal, but he is the one who completes it. And you talk yeah. about, and there's a great section in this chapter on, and I think this is so vital for people to, to, to understand this, that God is really calling us, as you say, to become what we already are. Oh, yeah. We typically have it backwards, you know. We try to become something, and then if we if we ever make it, then we say, okay, that's who we are. But it's the opposite. You know, we don't work toward victory. We work from it. We work from a place of sitting. The three metaphors in the Scripture, sit, walk, and stand, which is the kind of the theme of Ephesians. First, we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. Mm-hmm. Then we walk worthy of the Lord, and then we stand against the enemy. Watch me wrote a little book on this whole topic, but, you know, we kind of have it backwards. Well, we're going to walk first, (laughs) then we'll stand, then we'll finally sit, you know? And um, the fact of the matter is, in reality, which is how God sees things and what God has done, in reality, we are totally blameless, and we are totally received of His fullness, and, and we are totally complete, and we are totally pleasing to God. And all that's true. It's real. You know, it's not just a theology. It's real. And once we embrace that, um, then we begin to walk according to what we already are, mm-hmm. you know, our nature, who we are in Christ. And so I have a lot in the book about that in that chapter, you know, but that's a key thing because we walk as natural people, people who are in the world who don't know the Lord and everything is performance, and we have to get to that place. And here's the thing, Tommy, I'll tell every Christian, if you're trying to work towards something, five years is going to go by, you're going to keep trying to walk toward it. And 10 years is going to go by, you're going to keep trying to walk toward it. You know, it's always going to be, well, I'm trying to get to here, I'm trying to work on this, trying to do that. And the fact of the matter is, if you understand who you are in Christ and you embrace that, that language goes out the door, yeah. and you actually start seeing real progress in your life. Yeah, I think of what, uh, I don't know if it's Romans, I can't remember where it's found, but where it, it, I think as Paul tells us, let us live up to what we have already attained. Let us live up yeah. to who we are in Christ. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. Awesome. In terms of doing a treatment on spiritual growth from A to Izzard, uh, that's <laughs> in that chapter. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He will complete what he started, and I talk about the process of that. And then all the metaphors that the Bible uses for spiritual yeah. growth. You know, we're first babes, then we're children, then we grow into adulthood, you know, and, and all of what that means and how it works out practically. You also conclude the last chapter... Um and I think it's an important one because I think sometimes we get caught up and, you know, you watch the news, you see what's going on, and, and sometimes it can feel like uh, things are spiraling out of control. We're losing the battle. We're losing the fight. And you remind us in Chapter 7 that, that part of Jesus' present ministry is that he is still Lord of the world. 
He's Lord of the world. Yeah. Boy, that was the, that was really the, the heart of the gospel message in the first century. You know, Paul Tarsus, every town he went into, riots would break out. He'd get thrown in prison. He'd get his <laughs> back beat. And, and why? You know, it wasn't because he was saying, oh, well, Jesus died on the cross. He'll forgive your sins. It's because he was saying there's a new Caesar on the throne. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not Nero. It's this Jew from Nazareth named Jesus of Nazareth. And he is Lord of the world. He's the new emperor. Emperor. Whoa, that is a subversive, subversive message. Even in uh, the book of Acts, when he went into Thessalonica, they got all riled up because he preached a different Caesar. Mm-hmm. He was saying Jesus was the new emperor. I point out in the book, well, he's Lord of the world. Okay, what does that mean? I mean, you know, turn on the news this morning and see all the stuff that's going on. It doesn't appear yeah. <laughs> that he's Lord of the world. And so I, I won't steal the thunder of the book, but if readers read that chapter, they will be encouraged that he is Lord of the world. And they'll also understand, too, the great privilege that they have to make that a visible reality as his body on the earth. He's up there as Lord, ruling and reigning, but his body is on earth to make that a practical reality and and more visible than it is. Nonetheless, it is true. Yeah. We're talking with Frank Viola. The book is Jesus Now, Unveiling the Present-Day Ministry of Christ. We've talked about some of them. You also talk about Jesus as the chief shepherd, builder of Ecclesia, head of the church. I mean, lots of other stuff in the book uh, that people will have to get if they want to find out about. Hey, Frank, we really appreciate you spending some time with us. It's always good talking to you. Thanks for being with us this morning. Oh, it's my honor. Thank you so much. God bless, brother. Way down in the background, see frustrated souls of cities burning, and all Across the water, boulevard seal, weapons barking out the sting of death. And up in the clouds, I can imagine you folks chuckling themselves, <laughs> laughing. They saying, "Those people so uptight, they sure know how to make a mess." <laughs> <laughs> 